Auzubillahiminashaitanirrajim Bismillahirrahmanirrahim In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh Peace be upon you all And welcome back to another edition of the Drive Time Show With myself, Saad Ahmed, Brother Hanif and Brother Zakaria Today we have some interesting topics to speak about And learn about and our listeners to hopefully enjoy And understand more about the history, what's been happening And see what's um, happened before um, even even before I was born and it's good to catch up to, with the history also and in the second hour we will be having another discussion where Brother Zakaria has been the producer of this show and is about interfaith but if in the first hour we were speaking about the Bosnian genocide and what happened how it happened and we have um, guests with us today who will be explaining to us regarding this topic. First of all, Asalaamu Alaikum Brother Hanif, how are you? Oh, very good. Uh, looking forward to both the topics. I think this uh, Bosnian genocide is something that people have completely forgotten about. True, isn't even before I was born. Yeah, I mean, I was around uh, when this was taking place and when we had the influx of the Bosnian refugees that came to the country and how the service that we gave to the Bosnian community by our Jamaat where we visited them at their detention centres and at the hotels that they were being housed. There was lots of vivid memories of how we um, got to know. But that was the first time I got to taste Bosnian coffee. Wow. Bosnian coffee is one of the strongest coffees I've ever had in my life. Wow. Okay, so that's uh, one of the, the, the reflections. Even stronger than the Arabian coffee. <laughs> well, yeah, like it, it could be. I've not, I don't remember Arabian coffee, but all I remember, <laughs> Bosnian coffee is one of the strongest. But yeah, no, doing well, looking forward to it and looking yes. forward to the second topic as well. You know, for our listeners, um, why are we discussing this topic today? Because on the um, 11th of July, 2023 marks the 28th anniversary of the genocide that sh- um, that saw the mass killings of Muslim men and boys in the Srebrenica. Um, These men and boys killed were civ- uh, civilians who were taken as prisoners and merci- uh, mercilessly um, tortured and murdered. And Zakaria, we as as you know, the, the history of this conflict. Um, it started around um, in 1991, and um, yep. Yugoslavia began to break up um, Moscow um, along ethnic lines. Yeah. When the Republic of Bosnia declared independence in 1992, the region quickly became embroiled in fighting and wars. The Serbs targeted Bosnian and Croatian ci- civilians. The war in Bosnia claimed the lives of estimated around 100,000 people and displaced more than 2 million. You know, wars, right? Yeah. They're always tragic. You see many people who die. Hmm. You see many people become homeless. Many people get displaced. People who had a living or a family around them suddenly yeah. is just in smoke. Yeah, lots of injustices happen. Sure. I mean, that's because of, uh, you know, people have forgotten to be human or have a sympathy for the, for their fellow human beings. And that happens when, you know, people slowly, slowly, you know, forget the, uh, the the faith. You know, in every faith, and especially when we speak about uh, Islam today, in today's show, you see that, you know, it is forbidden, in fact, to um, kill innocent people. Correct. And even if you have to do war, then, in, you know, it should be out of... Um, uh, self um, defense, mm-hmm. right? Not to win territories in order to, you know, rule over other people. Now, 
the the height of the killings in in uh, Bosnia uh it took place in July 1995 and uh, where when 8000 Bosnians were killed in what mm. became uh, the known as the Srebrenica or Srebrenica uh, uh genocide right a very difficult name but uh, yes. it's a forgotten name um um but a a, a tragic a, a, one of the largest massacres that happened in Europe after the Holocaust, right? So uh, it's 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 very tragic. It's um, it's something that um, that we cannot forget because it's a tragic. It's 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 a a war that happened that uh, or, you know where many people have lost their lives yes. right and from from the history we le- we learn that uh, you know these kind of things cannot happen in order to uh these things not to be happening we should you know create peace in the world right so Correct. it's extremely important for us to discuss uh these matters um and, and, and politicians they should you know always look at these matters that happen and not repeat the same mistakes that history have done isn't it oh god yeah i mean if we look at what's happening now i mean history is repeating itself isn't it i mean when we look at what's yeah. going on with the invasion of uh, ukraine by the russian forces and then if you look at what's been going in darfur at the moment there's a uh, sudan south sudan and back there at war again as well mm-hmm. uh, because people haven't learned they just don't learn and not until yeah. we do not spread the word of peace humanity and tolerance and i think the the second subject we're going to talk about which you've written about as kind of feeds into this if we can kind of have this dialogue that goes Correct. on this interfaith dialogue and yeah. obviously extend it out we could avoid these things. I mean, if you remember back in the day after the Second World War, the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia was formed and um, it was then it comprised of Bosnia, it comprised of Serbia, Montenegro, Croatia and even Slovenia and, uh, you know, some parts of um, Macedonia and with all these Ethnic groups, they were all getting on really well. No yeah. problem whatsoever. Mm. But it was down to one individual person. Um, the the tensions between the groups were held at bay because of this fantastic, amazing individual uh, who was... Um, there is the president and when he came to power after this was formed in 1943, he's the one who kept the ethnic groups... Uh, not wanting to dominate each group, not wanting to dominate. And that was uh, President Tito. Most yes. people probably would have forgotten him by now. Mm. But he, he was the person that kept all of these groups that I mentioned, Bosnia, Serbia, Montenegro, Croatia, Slovenia, Macedonia. And they were all in their own right, ethnic mm. groups. But his whole passion at the time was to ensure that not one group wanted to expand and become stronger than the other. But then after his death is when things turned around. Mm. It was when he passed away. Uh, I think he passed away. His death was in 1980. Mm -hmm. And then everything he put together and worked so tirelessly for started to unravel. Mm. And that's when you started having the ethnic groups and the Republicans in Yugoslavia that wanted to sort independence. Mm -hmm. And that independence is you can always start reflecting it when what happened with the with the Second World War, and it started with the, with the Germans, of, of yes. how the 
started the media started doing nationalistic views, trying to redraw lines. Again, it's another history that uh, repeated itself. Hmm. But anyway, you know, the company it did massively spiral out of control. And this is where the Serb nationalism, it was uh, fueled by this person, by Slobodan Milosevic, uh, and he rose to power afterwards in 1987. And Milosevic... uh, used all those national feelings to his advantage like i said in the in the what hitler did you know mm. all those things but he and, and he just created such a bad vibe that this is what then started this ethnic cleansing by them and then started making constitutional changes that favored the serbs mm. you know, when you start reading the notes here you can start yes. relating it to so many things how governments want to try and change policy for their own benefits mm. and we see countries around the world that are heading towards a nationalistic type approach mm-hmm. how they're cleansing and making life difficult you're going to get an upsurge you're going to create a very difficult situation so I'll, I'll just finish off by by saying that when these national feelings uh, were were coming through and the laws were, were changing, what the crucial thing was, was that 90% of the Serbs became kind of military, mm-hmm. which made them a, a fighting force that was obviously ready for it to be able to take on the rest of the 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 groups or or the ethnic communities Mm -hmm. and there he started stoking so much of this ethnic tension and convincing the serb population that they were better than the other groups they had more rights and they were being threatened Mm -hmm. and that's when the propaganda against the muslim bosnians uh, claiming that they should not be trusted i mean there's a lot more but you know that's you can see the writing on the wall can't you it's quite obvious You know, um, Brother Hanif, to take this um, conversation further, we have yeah. our first caller, first guest oh, with us. Yeah. Um, his name is Dr. Tom Simpson, um, who has a PhD in religious studies. Uh, he is an instructor in religious and philosophy, ethnic and human rights at um, Phillips Exeter Academy in Exeter, New Hampshire of the United States. With this short introduction, I would like to welcome to the show. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. How are you, Dr.? Thank you so much for for having me. It's my it's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you so thank much you. Uh, for for joining us on such an important topic on a, such an um, important day. Um, Doctor, the, the first question I wanted to ask is, you know, in in Bosnia, uh, um, the people were mass murdered in a, in hor- horrifying ways. Um, could you shed some light uh, on this inhumane treatments towards the people? Uh, of course, um, and, and I'll just say again, thank you for having me. And um, I, uh, of course, want to center um, and keep the focus on survivors um, sure. today who are yeah, sure. still um, feeling the the pain of this um, and, and really an unhealed pain that's been with them for more than thirty years now. Um, Twenty eight years for the Srebrenica genocide and, and thirty one for the uh, since the beginning of the war. Um, uh, so, in in terms of yes, this uh, as as uh, our our other guest was describing, um, this fascist um, momentum uh, built uh, this this uh, vision of a greater Serbia that would purge uh, Yugoslavia of all non-Serbs and especially targeting uh, the Muslim population, um, and with the culmination at Srebrenica. Um, 
Yes, it, it was absolutely horrific and, and something that um, Europe had had kind of vowed uh, would never happen again you know, after the Holocaust. Uh, mm-hmm. But what really uh, alarmed um, people internationally um, was uh, the evidence in, in 1992 that concentration camps were um, were uh, being built again in Europe. Um, yes. And so you find uh, in, in just in very short summary, you, you find um, the, the horrifying reality of concentration camps, of mm-hmm. systematic torture, of systematic rape um, in, in places like Sarajevo um, and Bihać uh, and other cities. You have um, prolonged siege um, and and terror for civilian populations, so um, children being shot at, civilians, adults being shot at as mm-hmm. they're just trying to find food and water, um, being cut off from running water, being cut off from um, reliable sources of heat uh, all winter, um, things like this. So it's a really, um, you know, a, a prolonged process of uh, terror and uh, targeting, um, also a process of cultural destruction. Um, and so targeting mosques, uh, targeting um, the National Library in Sarajevo, for instance. Um, so just trying to erase um, erase uh, uh, non-Serbs uh, as part of the Greater Serbia Project. Uh, Croatian fascists were also involved in, in um, kind of just uh, terrifying violence. Um, yes. And so it's trying to erase uh, Bosnia itself as a multi-ethnic and multi-religious society. Um, and, and so that was that was the, the horror and terror that Bosnians lived with for those long years from 1992 to 1995. Yes, uh, Doctor, uh, one more question is, yeah. you know, that yes. we, has, we, we see during this period, um, nowadays in 20, 2023 when we're talking about this, um, people have forgotten about the, um, this um, genocide or uh, this extreme war which happened between um, in the 90s. So how come yeah. this is being for- forgotten? And why is not that being remembered as, let's say, World War One or World War Two is being remembered, or other uh, wars are being remembered? Sure. sure, that's a wonderful question. I, I appreciate it, and um, I'll, I'll answer it as best I can. I, because I've thought about this a long time, as I've, I've tried to teach about this genocide for for more than a decade now. Um, I think. I, first and foremost, genocide confronts us with uncomfortable truths. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are uncomfortable and painful truths about the um, the failure of the international community to um, yeah. do anything meaningful um, to intervene, um, uh, at least until 1995 when the siege of Sarajevo was finally broken. And, you know, uh, um, and uh, a, a very problematic set mm-hmm. of peace accords were signed in, in 1995 that at least brought the violence to an end. But there's the uncomfortable and painful truth of uh, the, the failure of the international community, the failure of the United Nations, um, the failure of um, especially Europeans and Americans to kind of um, adhere to the, the values that they, um, that they uh, professed, you mm-hmm. know, um, about international community and solidarity. Um, and then I think the, the Balkans themselves present um, particular challenges to um, understanding for outsiders. Uh, so, um, you know, so just it, it's interesting that the, it seems that the Balkans require all kinds of uh, explanation and classification for people to kind of understand that it was not um, fundamentally a 
civil war that was taking place in, in Bosnia, that it, it was a genocidal uh, slaughter you know, and things like this. And you have to keep kind of um, re-emphasizing what the, you know, and people kind of get lost in the weeds of like which ethnic group was which and, and yeah, things well, like that. You can't argue and with so, the numbers, can you? You just can't argue with them. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. And so, so you just have to keep coming back. And I think Bosnians have done an extraordinary job. Survivors have done an extraordinary job of of advocating for themselves and building alliances. But um, there, it's it's not a large community, and so you know, I think a certain kind of a certain memory comes with um, political power in some ways. And Bosnians are are short on political power. Um, it's a, it's a small place. Bosnia itself is about the size of uh, the, the U.S. state of West Virginia. Um, and, and a lot of the population has left, um, uh, you know, and, and so, um, you know, Bosnians are working, survivors are working really, really hard to make sure that people don't forget, um, especially because the political situation there is still unstable and people who celebrate the genocide and deny the genocide yeah. um, are still in power, in power. Mm-hmm. And so it's an unstable situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, on that point, when they celebrate yeah. today, you still get yeah. uh, Bosnians, don't you, at the Remembrance Day saying that it didn't happen. H- how is oh. that? How is that possible? Uh, and isn't it just uh, horrific yeah. that people still feel yes. that this genocide didn't take place? Yes, those are. Our realities. Uh, there, there are some wonderful um, scholars who have done work on the stages of genocide, and and what's I think particularly frightening about the Bosnian case is that you have a what a, coinc- a, a simultaneous um, the simultaneous reality of people who deny that the genocide happens. Um, and at the same time, people are engaging in what's called genocide triumphalism. People are bragging that it happened and, and that they'll do it again. And so, the again, part of the instability and the, and the pain and the, the enduring suffering that Bosnians are going through, that survivors are going through, has to do with having to hear um, leading officials uh, deny that it happened and then also um, hearing people uh, brag that it happened yeah. and that they're, they're willing to do it again. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Simpson, around the globe, uh, yeah. see that uh, genocide and injustices continue to exist. And, and, and uh, are humans programmed to be unjust? Are we made to be unjust? Oh. Uh, what drives people to be evil, in, in your opinion? Oh, that's another just essential question um, that I've given a lot of thought to as a not just as a teacher, but as a parent, um, as a, as someone who works with young people. Um, I, I believe, and you know, I, I'll, I'll say right up front that a book that has influenced me a lot is called, um, the roots of evil, mm-hmm. which is by Irvin Staub, who is a, a psychologist who is also a Holocaust survivor. Um, and when I just, when I started teaching about genocide and Holocaust years ago, um, his work was very influential for me, and, and he's he's drawing on the psychological research that indicates that we, I think the good news is, in my mind, the good news is that we have tremendous um, capacities for compassion mm-hmm. and care uh, for others. Um, and I, I don't think that human beings are um, innately 
um, evil in, in any way. I think we have strong impulses. Um, I think we have, I, I think if we're given permission to exercise cruelty on a mass scale, then we can see the kinds of things that happened in Bosnia. And so I think that was um, just the, the lethal irresponsibility of um, politicians and, and religious leaders and, and other you know, influential people giving civilians permission to kill, permission to rape, permission to shoot at children. Um, that, that is evil. Um, that, is, that, is, that is something we're capable of. Um, but at the same time, I'm thinking of a scholar uh, in Sarajevo named Zilka Spahic uh, Shiliak, um, a Muslim uh, feminist scholar who, who talks about how people exhibited real heroism and real compassion in these terrible circumstances as well, really like sticking up for vulnerable people. And I think we're capable of that as well. So I always think when I teach young people, I say we're capable of great mm. compassion and great solidarity and we're capable of great cruelty. And we just, we have to um, choose. We have to choose compassion. Yeah. We have to, we have to restrain ourselves from that kind of cruelty, knowing that we're capable of it. Uh, Dr. I hope that was an okay answer to your question. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Um, we're really short of, of time now, but I just yeah. wanted to ask you one quick question before we end, because you're quite close to this. Currently today in Bosnia, yeah. they are uh, taking 30 uh, coffins to be yeah. buried. But in those coffins, there are skeletons that just contain uh, parts of a body some contain just yeah. single bones that they haven't been yeah. able to identify or even find the complete uh, body two things one yes. how do you get how do you come back from that how do parents although they're burying their oh. their loved ones yeah. knowing that their whole body is not there and secondly, how does yeah. the nation kind of heal? Sorry, that's a long-winded question, but we don't have much time, and no. I apologize, but I it's just a, felt it's, it's a beautiful it, question. It, it's yeah. seen happen today. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful question, and and you, I think the question answers itself in some ways. I think you can sense how painful um, this is. Um, it's it's meaningful, of course, for family members to be able to finally bury their loved ones. Um, but what you're describing about just the, the fragments of bones that have been identified reflects a horrific and painful reality of um, that just that sometimes these bodies were were buried in mass graves and then exhumed um, and, and reburied and, and separated into multiple locations. And it's been a, a forensic uh, puzzle and a, and a nightmare in many ways to try to identify as as many bodies as possible so that survivors can have some shred of peace mm. um, and and but healing is still a long way off for people okay. who have who have suffered such um, extraordinary yeah. trauma yeah well, well we probably will come back to, to this uh, dr. Tom yeah. Simpson's but yeah. uh, for now thank yeah. you very much uh, for your time and your insight into this and I hope we will be able to do some sort of justice to this this day of remembrance in a way. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time and your questions. I really appreciate it. You're welcome.
Thank you so much. So this was Dr. Tom Simpson, and it was great, you know, Brother Hanif speaking with him. I just remembered, you know, be it uh, this genocide or be it um, the Indo-Pak split, be it the war in Iraq, be it the war in Palestine, be it the war in um, Syria, any war or any kind of um, massacre, I, I, I don't know how people come back from... I remember when my elders used to speak about the Indo-Pak split, they said there were rivers of blood... Yeah flowing so even uh, even in this time where you see many unmarked graves or just finding fragments of yeah. parts of the bodies and the um, parents or the beloved ones are you know burying those away how do we get out of this you know uh, all the survivors from this i i salute them for coming out of it and trying to make a living and um, and trying to um, yeah. head on um, yeah, Zakaria, so, so in, in this, because you know you've done a bit of research in the dialogue side, how much of this will help faith? You know, people come out, you well, know, s- get through this. It's it's extremely difficult um, to go through this. I mean, if you know the history, if if your family members are involved in this, it's very very difficult. But um, in faith, um, we are always reminded, and there is a phrase. Um, and, and there is a verse, in fact, uh, which has mm. been taught to uh, Muslims in the Holy Quran, which says, "Inna lillahi wa inna ilahi rajiun." So, uh, surely we belong to God, and we will return to God Almighty. So, uh, the the thing is that the God, through God's mercy, we have been sent to this world, and and it is mercy that we have lived to this age. You know, my age. And, and and the thing is that it's always um, we never know when we have to go back so but uh, this is for sure that if you want to give uh, people peace in mind you could say that the good things that they have done in their lives uh, that will go through and God will f- certainly forgive them for yes. for the pain that they have gone through and 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 every person who goes mm. through pain in this world, and they have been just in this world, then God will definitely reward them in the hereafter. Yeah. So this is something we always remind uh, people with a little bit loss. That's quite consoling, that is. Yes. You know, Zakri, um, we have with us our second guest, uh, Sister Maliha Avdic, who is a actively involved with citizen action in Bosnia, not just regarding the war, but Dayton um, and the life in Bosnia under Dayton. So with this short introduction, I would like to welcome her to the show. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. Zakla for joining us um, today. So I wanted to ask, um, what was life like in Bosnia before the war? And how has it changed since then? Uh, well, many will look back uh, their life in Bosnia before the war with longing and nostalgia nowadays. Um, everyone had a job, a place to live, healthcare, education. It was safe. There was even enough money to go traveling. Um, you know, and everyone took at least one holiday a year. Uh, however, there were limits to freedom of expression mm-hmm. and there were inequality. I don't think anybody can deny that, especially discrimination in education, in promotion of work, uh, uh, even safety, but particularly religious and especially against practicing Muslims. Yes. Now, um, now corruption is through the roof. Uh, everything is politicized. Uh, justice is at bare minimum if it exists at all. Mm-hmm. Rule of law is some fancy phrase that we throw around uh, every so often. So 
Life is very hard for ordinary people who feel like li- uh, lies and deception are the only thing that is around them. So no one feels safe. Um, this combined with our trauma and generational trauma is having a very negative effect on the lives of people in Bosnia. But we yes. are fighting. So if you were to go to Bosnia, I don't think any anyone would notice too much of this. Mm-hmm. So, Sister Melika, um, I wanted to ask, you know, um, if you can tell us more about the Ahmadi Muslim community in Bosnia and how they have been established and how the Brotherhood and Sisterhood is um, be, um, being established there right now. Well, the Ahmadi Muslim community in Bosnia is very small, even yes. though it, it's been registered since '96. Uh, there are many reasons for that, uh, but I think we've got a very rich collection of books and literature translated into Bosnian. So, inshallah, you never know. Inshallah. And, you know, um, I, I remember also His Holiness Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih IV. Um, he, he mentioned Bosnia many times and he, he had also a mulaqat, um, which means having a gathering with the Bosnian people, in, I think in 95 or 94 at that time. And so, what was, you know, um, the response of the Ahmadi Muslim Jamaat and how did the efforts of the fourth caliph his holiness as a mirza tahir ahmed oversee the relief um efforts for bosnian muslims uh, i think first of all jamaat has always been uh, has always responded to anything that whenever something went wrong in bosnia so that includes during the war uh the fourth caliph uh, uh, had huge respect and i think he he deeply felt for the victims of the war in bosnia uh, I remember that back then he, he specifically said that when uh, humanitarian aid was taken that no tablis should be done because this should be purely humanitarian and people should not feel anything because very often people forget that prolonged starvation has an effect on mental ability and I think I think Khalifa knew this and just left it at humanitarian aid and that's it. Um, as far as, I mean, there, there, there were meetings even with officials. So Halifa had meetings with, with officials, and I think um, specifically with the president at the time, uh, Ali Zetelovic, and advised him not to sign any documents that are against the people of Bosnia, that are against Bosnia. Unfortunately, Dayton was forced. It is now um, a public secret that Dayton was forced, and he was forced to sign it. And... Um, now we have um, very, very little peace, if any, and um, very little justice. Mm-hmm. So, so just one quickly, on, on that uh, Dayton agreement, is there any way back from that? Because, um, you, you know, you kind of described a very bleak situation because of that agreement. Is there any way back? And I know you champion that quite, well, not champion it, but you work very closely with that agreement. Yes, we are fighting that agreement um, especially in the last few years. Actually, uh, the High Representative has done huge damage to, to the agreement and then followed by Dodik's recent uh, actions. Uh, we do we believe that, that Dayton doesn't actually exist anymore um, because it is only uh, in practice while it is respected. If it's not respected, so this is in the, in the legal framework, in the Constitution, mm that if Dayton is not respected, it will simply be removed and we will go back to the original. However, the practicalities of this are not so simple. Mm-hmm. So it is now um, accepting that, that Dayton is no longer valid because it hasn't been respected for, for many, many years, but particularly since October and more recently um, 
it, it's been undermined greatly. Uh, now, after so many years, uh, nearly 30 or 30 years, right, um, would you say that the Bosnian people have recovered emotionally from the trauma? It's very difficult, of course, not. But uh, how, you know, I would, I would ask differently, uh, you know, how do the Bosnian people now cope with the trauma and of, of the genocide? Um, well, no, of, co- of course, the, the country has not recovered. This is very, very much part of our uh, daily life. Um, I, I do like to believe that recovery is possible, but it will take generations and it will take peace and justice and equality mm. before we can even hope for future generations to have a normal life and to get emotionally over this. So to be part of their history, to know about it, but to not feel so closely. You know, I often tell people when I say they were after Bosnian Muslims, it means that they were after me too, after my family, my mm. brother. And uh, by grace of Allah, we escaped. But we could have been killed as well. This, this, yeah. We were on their list. So perpetrators were, it, it's not just a case of, you know, of someone out there that I have something, some connection to who has suffered this. This is about us personally. Hmm. Um, so it's definitely something that we feel very, very deeply. It is a huge trauma. It didn't come just all of a sudden that there were traumas that there were discrimination and inequalities before that we are researching and we would like to fix in the future um so you know inherited generational drama plus our personal experience and the trauma of that of course has had a huge effect and Dayton peace agreement has not helped one bit to to help victims overcome this Hmm. and and how does the bosnian diaspora commemorate the occasion? Well, uh, I mean, yes, there there are events all over the world, all kinds of events. Hmm. However, you know, for us, as I said, it's not an occasion. This is something that happened, and these people, for us, are dead every single day. Uh, Yes, this is the anniversary, and this is where we apply even more efforts to introduce others to to what has happened. But for us, um, it's an event that has that, that we remember every single day and every single day we strive to tell people about it to to spread the word but you know one of my friends once said i mean kind of jokingly but it's not it's not a joke but he said you know unless you put it in entertainment you're not going to get masses to know about it hmm. and of course we have now negators of genocide we have apologists for genocide being rewarded um noble prizes so you know we have a lot of issues that that we need to deal with in addition to the issues that the Asian Peace Agreement has caused. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's a complicated situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- there is um, a walk that takes place, doesn't it, from when the Bosnian men and young children went to leave Sarajevo to the following safe area. And I think one of the ways that people commemorate that is that they do that uh, walk. Is that is that right? Is that what will take place today? March of, of peace. Yes. It, well, it, it takes a, a number of days to actually walk that. Of course, distance. it's a hundred kilometers. I think, isn't it? Uh, it mm, uh, more than that. Is it more than uh, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. But it's a very uh, hard ground. It's yeah. not flat. It's over the mountains and and hills, and it's basically tracing back by steps. So rather than going from Srebrenica to the safe area, Tuzla, yeah. um, or Sarajevo, 
uh, we they, they go back towards Srebrenica and then they, they aim to be there. But there are bikers, for example, who come from, again, all, all parts of the world yeah. uh, who take the same route, um, whether on motorbikes or pedal bikes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, all kinds of events yeah. that we face. Because when I was looking at that, I found that really interesting that that happens every year where they go and, and do that route in various ways. I didn't know they did it by road. That's uh, that, that's excellent in a way. But the point is it, it remembers it and it, the journey and the arduous and the precarious. And when they were hunted down uh, by the Serbs and murdered and killed when they were trying to escape, it's it's, it's just really sad. Anyway. Well, that's honestly one, one part of it. Um, mm. A large number of men were refuge at the UN at first. Yes, that's right. UN basically forced them out. So yeah. Um, yeah, because they gave up the post, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah basically, because uh, the UN was stationed in, in a factory. That factory is now located across from the memorial centre. So the the big graveyard that you've probably seen pictures of. Pictures yeah. of it. Yeah. And uh, it still stands there. I have yet. I have not been able to go into the whole factory. I I, I can still feel the fear, and uh, it, it still lingers on for me. Uh, and many people have have said the same. It just it, it's not possible to go because basically, when Sabrina fell, a lot of people took refuge there, hoping that the UN will escort them safely to a safe zone. Uh, however, the UN just handed them over to certain forces, and that's that's right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well. Listen, we'd love to carry on talking to you. We've got more guests, and but we want to do justice to this call. And, and thank you very much, uh, Malia, for you know your insight into this and, and sharing your thoughts as well. And you know, we wish you the, the, the luck. Of, you know, and obviously our prayers and thoughts are with you and with the work that you're doing, especially to kind of either rewrite or, or improve or do something with this Bosnian. Uh, the Dayton agreement that it is better for the people of Bosnia. That's what we want to see. We, we just want justice, really. But thank you. Thank you so much for your for the opportunity to speak. We always, always welcome thank any opportunity to voice ourselves. So thank you. Thank you so much, Zakla. So, we were just speaking um, regarding this. And you know, um, Brother Henry, wanted to ask you no. one question. Was was um, wondering, mind you've been traveling throughout the world. You have seen many countries. Have you seen any war-torn countries or not? Well, just at the beginning, yeah, I was in Arme- Armenia. Yes, and uh, there was already we were in a secluded area, and not far from where we were was the border where they're having the war against uh, Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. So that was going on. So I was there <laughs> at the beginning of the year. And I just want to reflect back something yes. you, you said earlier about our fourth cleaver. May Allah uh, be pleased with him when he spoke about the beginnings of the war. Um, when the Khudam, the youth, went, um, there was a call for to take... Um, Clothing, food, etc. Eight trucks. Yeah, yeah, and where we filled out from where we are, where the studios yes. are here today, and where the trucks went. The stories that were coming back yes. about the beautiful, magnificent beaches of Croatia that were just destroyed, completely just taken out, and the way people were just left destitute and killed and murdered was so 
distressing. And I know eventually Europe came to the aid of the Bosnians. And I know um, Tony Blair was considered as someone who led the charge. But my personal view is we were way too late. We just let it happen. And we should not have let that happen. We should have been. But I must say that our beloved Khalifa, Hazrat uh, Dynamit, who may I love you, please, saw the vision. He got the community together and sent Khudam there to help. Yes. And it was, it was, you know. Okay. You know about this, brother? Do you know when Hazrat Khalifa Al Masih the fourth? Yes. May be his helper. Um, when this started happening, and he had a sitting with the Bosnians yeah. at, at, at that time. I think you might be present uh, all around. In the, at, uh, it was before I was even born. I was, I was, re- I was, I was listening to it, and His Holiness said to them, mm. "If you want to send anything, you can just uh, the, the, the youth are going. The, the quite of um, eight, I think eight loads of trucks are going with them. You can send your stuff with them, and they can." bring back a video or pictures yeah. where they give them or so you can see your family or your beloved ones over there so you know, the, the love he had for the Bosnians and the lo- affection he had for them just making sure that the loved ones who are here in the UK are able to have some kind of connection because WhatsApp wasn't at that time there yeah. so this is how they used to communicate. So when, when, the, when then when they were kind of liberated or when many of the refugees left Bosnia, many came to the United Kingdom. Yes. And I remember at that time as well, all the local communities up and down the country were given the charge to write, go and find out where the Bosnian communities are being homed and housed. And you go and make connection with them, show them your love, uh, invite them to your mosques. And we were in Hounslow, I remember at that time, we were lucky one of the hotels, a very big hotel, was there housing many of the Bosnian refugees. And we were very fortunate to, to bring them to our mosques and listen to their stories and feed them and really get to understand. Many of them couldn't speak English, but men, some could. Yes. And uh, that's when I said to you, the first time I experienced the, the Bosnian coffee, because we built up a really nice relationship. Mm-hmm. And then they told us, you know, they started sharing us about the coffee. And it was just so amazing. And then, then the, the brotherhood, it just got so great. But, you know, you mentioned earlier about, have we forgotten this? Now when I look back, I don't remember the last time I even thought about the Bosnian genocide. And it really hurts me to think that all the work that we did back then, nearly 20 years ago, and now it kind of has been forgotten in a way. Yes. Mm. And because there's so much more destruction going on around the world. Yeah. Tell me which news feed in the UK is, is, is talking about today. Voice of Islam is. I would love to know what other stations are doing talking about this subject, but that just shows our love we have had for Bosnia and the Bosnian community. Yes, you know, Brother Hanif, we have a audio clip about um, His Holiness oh, where yeah. he mentioned regarding Bosnian and the Bosnian people. I'd like to play this for our uh, our listeners. Future of Bosnia, in my view, is brighter than ever before, because before this war took place. Bosnia was not known among the Committee of Nations as anything of importance. It was a small state of Europe which had suffered heavily during the previous two world wars. And it was engulfed by communists all around. Bosnians were never given the uh, option 
of making choices for themselves. And they were engulfed all around by forces which had insulated from them from the rest of the world, particularly from the Muslim world. So now things have changed completely. You have suffered a lot. You have offered huge sacrifices with the grace of Allah. He gave you strength to do that. But what I see now is the era of reward. You are going to be rewarded not only in the hereafter, but here on this earth for your gigantic sacrifices which have raised your head among the nations as a great nation who knows no defeat. So this was His Holiness's words and wisdom regarding Bosnia. You know, um, Brother Zakaria, it's always great to listen to the words of His Holiness and may Allah be His helper and see how um, He shows love or um, what um, he has the feelings for uh, for the Bosnian people hmm. because you know as uh, brother Hanif has mentioned also in this uh, in the 20 uh, in 2023 no one is talking about it anymore yeah. has it been forgotten the question mark is there hmm. that it, it, because I haven't learned it in, in my school um, no. curriculum at I haven't, all. I haven't learned it either. and yeah. it's interesting I've, I've learned World War One World War Two and I've learned the names and everything in that time but I am but this genocide where many people were massacred and it was never heard in my curriculum yeah but the, the anything else all this uh, small names but with these things which you know are in effectively people the survivors are living in this uh, in 2023 yeah. they, you can speak to them you can talk to them but yeah. it was never taught to us at that time mm. even what we want let's say is around 100 plus years ago people have passed away now most of them and that's being still talked about but these people who are survivors who have seen and uh, the war or even let's say it, the war in iraq or be it in syria be it in palestine these people are living who have survived mm-hmm. and they they're they're ready to share the story we should be going out hopefully we should be able to learn more from them and try to have a um, dialogue with the people why is this happening and try try to build up some peace yeah. around this world yeah and and we'll be discussing to one of our guests in uh, in, in in the next hour uh, but also you know islam uh, in Islam we have guidance about the conditions in, in which Muslims can go to war um, and have and, and, and Islam prescribes it yes. almost 1500 years ago and the under the Islamic teachings a war may only take place if it is defensive in its nature yeah, that's right? before. Uh, like Correct. I mentioned it before as well and, and in, in addition to this special considerations are to be made to ensure um, that the civilians, particularly women, children, the elderly people, um, uh, the, the infants, and um, are or they they are not being harmed during yes. the war, right? And the Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings Allah be upon him, even stated that religious people and buildings must not be harmed, and that even the environment must not be damaged. So. Um, for example, chopping down uh, trees uh, or, or damaging, uh, you know, buildings uh, unnecessarily, right? That was all forbidden uh, in the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah. This is the true teachings of Islam. You know, Islam teaches that if you want, if if there is a war happening, you can have it for for your own self-defense. 
And even if you have to fight, you cannot fight those who are vulnerable or those who are are weak, right? Um, as we also, you know, uh, spoke to one of our guests um, earlier, um, uh, who is uh, Ulia Chaudhry, uh, who is an uh, Ahmadi Muslim yeah. who visited Bosnia. Uh, with the charity remembering uh, Srebrenica, right? So uh, we would like to listen to that, um, you know, conversation as well. So did you know much about the genocide that took place in Bosnia before you went? Not an awful lot, because I think I was actually quite young when it happened. I do remember it appearing on the news and more so about Kosovo, really, and, and less about Bosnia. And I remember it did strike me at the time, despite being young. And I think one of the things that struck me particularly was that it was a Muslim, it was Muslim specifically that were being targeted and in Europe. So I was uh, a Muslim living in Europe at the time. And I think as a child, that made me feel really uneasy. I felt um, quite un- unnerved by it. And it made me think, you know, I do wonder if this is something that's going to make its way all the way across Europe. And at the time, geographically, I had no idea where in Europe, Bosnia or Kosovo or the you know, neighboring countries were. But I do recall, um, the news at the time but then nothing really since that um i don't remember it ever coming up in the news after that or ever you know seeing it in the newspapers or ever seeing it as a talking piece it was only when um i joined a multi-faith sort of inter interfaith dialogue um, group for women where the discussion came up about bosnia and then we were introduced to a charity called remembering srebrenica and they took us abroad to bosnia for four days and that's sort of when i learned more about it in detail all right so um can can you tell us about any of the accounts of a genocide that particularly impacted you yeah so when we went there um we were shown to various sites so we were shown to cemeteries for example Um, sites of mass murder and genocide. Um, We were taken to galleries, we were shown videos. So there's a lot of information that we quickly had to sort of digest. And at the time, um, it it just felt really overwhelming. But the the stuff that impacted me the most was hearing from survivors directly. So hearing from their stories, Um, in particular, you know, people who were my age at the time of the war, people who had very similar um, family settings. I remember speaking um, to somebody who was one of three, I'm one of three, um, they lived in a place where there was um, almost fully Christian uh, neighbours and they got along with them really well. That's what the community that I live in. Um, and then all of a sudden, um, their neighbours one day decided to knock on their door and tell them to leave. And they oh. didn't. So then the following day, they came back with guns and asked them to leave oh. again. And these are just people that they knew they lived with, they played with, they went to each other's house. Uh, houses um, and Bosnia was really unique in that you had Croats, Serbs and Bosnians living side by side and they followed different religions and different customs but there was a lot of overlap as well so there was a lot of um, intermarrying people would celebrate each other's religious festivals um, I met someone who said he would have a Quran and a Bible in his house because he felt he was you know a, a, he was both he was to him Bosnian meant all identities and then all of a sudden um, it just fractured and there was these lines, these divides between these communities and they just quickly turned on each other. And I thought that was you know, particularly terrifying that they could do that to one another. And then there were some really horrible, gruesome accounts as well. But, you know, the saddest were speaking to mums who lost entire generations of men. They lost their, they, were, they called the mothers of Srebrenica. And they lost their husbands, their sons, their grandchildren, you know, their grandsons, their nephews. 
one by one they were taken away um this one mother particularly said that there was a time where all the boys were lined up and the serbs just had a tape measure that they dangled from you know a height they just picked a height at random any boy above that height was oh. then taken on to buses and later killed and she said both her sons at the time despite being i think under the age of 13 were above that height and they were both taken away and she said she remembers her son saying to her turn away i don't want you seeing me walk onto that bus and that's the last thing she remembers of him just having to turn away and he was taken away on that bus and, and that was it and 20 something years later she's still looking for his body he was found in a mass grave or parts of him were they were they managed to with dna profiles match the families but in the end um she found i don't think if it, i don't think it was even 10 bones but whatever she did manage to find in time she's buried um and it's not quite closure because she knows there's parts of him still buried in mass graves all across bosnia it's just heartbreaking to hear that uh, gosh don't even know how people can do do such horrible things but i mean in your opinion do you think that the genocide you know considering what you've told us has it been addressed properly in bosnia i wouldn't say so unfortunately not um so what happened after the genocide was they essentially split bosnia into two parts so there's there's Bosnia um, and then there's Repub Republic of Serbia or Republic of Srpska. Um, and the part where you know, the biggest genocide took place, so Srebrenica itself, is actually in what would be the Serbian part of Bosnia. So the, you know, the local government there or the mayor or the townspeople, they are largely Serbian. Um, they are basically actively involved in genocide denial. So the place where you see the mass graves, the place where you've got the the place they've got the warehouses where people were taken, beaten, tortured, murdered. These warehouses that have still got, you know, graffiti on their walls from when, and we're talking, you know, decades on. Um, there's three, four generations of families that must have seen or experienced one way or another, either firsthand or secondhand, the genocide that took place. And yet they're not even allowed to, in their own town where they were murdered, when they were gathered together and murdered, they're not even allowed to um, acknowledge that it happened because the local authority and the local townspeople, not just in in in, in um, Srebrenica, but across Bosnia, um, just don't accept that the genocide took place. Terrible, isn't it? So what are the important lessons, you know, going forward that we can learn from this genocide? I think one is community cohesion is so important. I don't think you can take that for granted. Um, people in Bosnia just could not believe that this happened to them. You know, there were people who had Bosnians and Serbians or Bosnians and Croats within the same families and their families turned on each other. You know, uncles beat aunties, you know, husbands raped wives. It was really, really gruesome. Some of it, it was really horrific. So I think we can't take that for granted. Um, and the other thing I think we need to be really, really mindful of is propaganda, a divisive language being used in the media, on the news, Anything that others, another group of people, I think we need to be really careful about that. And um, one of the things we learned about while we were there were the 10 steps um, of genocide. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen by itself. Um, you have to be mindful of the initial steps, you know, the 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 othering that starts from the, the very start that makes you feel that there's groups of people out there who maybe um, you should either be afraid of or wary of. Um, as soon as you start harboring hostilities towards people like that, 
Um, and if the if the propaganda is good enough, you will follow it through. You know, they had everyday people turning on their own family members, their own neighbours, picking up guns, shovels, any type of weapon, um, setting houses on fire. So, you know, it wasn't just the army that came in and did it. It was everyday people. And that was the power of propaganda at that time. So I think that's something we need to be really mindful of. Okay, thank you so much, Julia, for joining us today. Have a lovely day. Thank you. So this was Olya Chaudhry, who is an Ahmadi Muslim, who visited Bosnia with a charity remembering the Sri Benika. And, you know, um, Brother Hanif, you know, we're hitting the and five o'clock nearly so we'll carry on the show um after the five o'clock i have uh, more guests on after this and as we remember the people who have passed away or who have been uh, killed um um during that genocide which happened in in, in the in the 90s and hopefully our listeners will try to remember them and learn more about it and we'll see you inshallah again after the five o'clock news a new station the voice of islam with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Uh, We have entered the second hour now, um, so we will be discussing with you, uh, as promised to you, um, about an important topic today. Um, In this hour we will be discussing the importance of faith, interfaith dialogue in promoting peace and understanding. But before that, uh, we still need to, uh, you know, conclude our discussion of the previous hour. It was such an important discussion. Um, and we also promised that we will have uh, a guest, uh, our last guest for, for the Bosnian genocide topic. Um, and, and and before before the uh, before the news, we were listening to one of the uh, conversations we had earlier. Um, but uh, you know, when we look um, at, for example, uh, you know, I was I was mentioning about the what what the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him yes. has has taught us, right? About how we should you know treat. Um, you know, um, the people who we have conflicts with, or, or when we have a war, how we should treat the people who we are attacking, right? So the Holy Prophet clearly said that whoever is not involved in war, and whatever is not involved in war, especially you know synagogues, you know churches, um, you know any type of worshiping places or places where people are you know seeking refuge, that should not be, be that should not be harmed. And the Holy Prophet, you know, peace and blessings be upon him, also ordered that the enemy prisoners of war should be treated with with kindness. Yes, right. In in those days in in Arabia, fourteen hundred years ago. You know the prisoners of war were dealt with, you know, uh, savagely, um, and 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 very, very the, the, they were the, they were they were treated really really bad, and and they were kept as slaves and used for labor and and heavy task. And this slavery stayed for many many years, even after Islam, right? Um, uh, for example, the, the the Bosnians, right? When uh, when they were massacred right or when just before being killed they were told to dig their own graves and they used to dig their graves and then they would shoot them and then you know and and, and kill them and and they will fall in 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 their own graves that they have digged 
So it's it, it, w- what our Holy Prophet has taught is that he was the first man, and when we learn, uh, we we learn from the history that he was the first man in history to give prisoners of war humane treatment. He ordered that they should be set free on payment of ransom. Um, some prisoners were asked to teach Muslims how to read and write. So even you know if they had to uh, be freed they would stand on their own feet and will be able to you know provide for themselves and the f- for their family as well when they when they meet again and 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 th- this duty of teaching them was also given to you know some of the um uh, the people who were learned amongst uh, the, the prisoners right so um as promised uh, we will discuss more in detail what happened in in bosnia uh, many years ago we have with us Amar Seremovic, who whose uh, parents are originally from uh, Bosnia. He himself is Bosnian. His grandmother was from uh, was uh, born in Srebrenica. Uh, uh, his great grandfather and great uncle were also victims of genocide. Many other uh, uh, paternal grandmother relatives as well. And even though he was born in the U.S., he is deeply connected with Bosnia and is planning to do his final thesis in Jamia in the, uh, the University of Theology and Modern Languages in um, in Canada, um, uh, which is about Islam in Bosnia and Bosnian history. So with this intro, I would like to um, welcome Amar Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to our show. Wa alaikum assalam, Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for for joining us, Amar. Um, um, so in Bosnia, people were mass mass murdered and and then put into a number of graves. Um, can you please tell us what challenges this presented to the families tracing their relatives? I think just imagining this is a horrific scene, uh, let alone digging through these mass graves and sorting through all the remains, trying to like puzzle together. And as I mentioned earlier in your program that every single year they're finding, you know, more fragments and more remains of these uh, deceased people. And the only thing that these families could do is they can only give uh, DNA samples and wait for the professionals to discover uh, the mass graves because everything was uh, hidden by the enemies. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is likely that some of the bodies will not be identified at all. Uh, and if so, why is this so? Why why can the bodies not be identified? Although we have the latest of the latest technology now. Uh, this is because because. Um, there's no uh, immediate relatives to give the DNA samples and unfortunately some of them might never be identified. Uh, just recently last year I went to Bosnia and I went to the, they have a, many museums about the atrocities that happened in the war and one of them is called Crimes Against Humanity and when you go to the museum you can read and you can see all the horrific uh, and tragic stories of a people's personal experience and some of the ways in the like how that they tortured these people is they would beat them and they would torture them so badly that they would say you know you look in the room there's nothing left of the person 
Hmm. And unfortunately, because of these um, you know, diabolical ways of killing and mutilating people, they would try to hide their crimes and they would dig their bodies all around the, the country. And then later on, they would try to excavate these uh, remains and put them in other places to hide uh, these bodies. And I think another form of uh, execution style is they would grab young men and women, uh, young uh, men and boys, and they would take them one by one, and they would execute them in spots blindfolded, and nobody can find them. So it can be around a lake or anywhere that you can imagine all over, all around the country. Yes, you know, Amar, so do you believe, you know, all this horror which was happening in that time, will the Bosnian people ever overcome this or not? Um, you know, as they say, life's, life goes on. Yes. But the minute you start driving towards that part of Bosnia, or like today on the 12th, like every year on this day, new remains are discovered in the families and many people around the world come to the Potocari, which is the area in Bosnia, where they uh, have this uh, huge mezar, the cemetery, and they do janaz and Semshia, and they try to remember all the innocent lives. And there are bigger problems that you know come forth from this. For example, the Serbs, they don't even want to acknowledge that it happened. Yes. So it's like if somebody hits you and they don't say, oh, I didn't hit you, that's, that's not going to solve the problem, but this is worse than just hitting somebody. You are trying to erase a whole entire people. And unfortunately, there are a lot of unhealed wounds. Like, for example, um, the only way I can really find a true example of healed wounds is my parents. And the only thing that has really healed them is Ahmadiyya. Hmm. Because the basis of our faith is love for all hatred for none. But the people that are living there, you know, unfortunately, they're constantly reminded of it. And it's very hard to, you know, 100% move on from it. Yes. Well, we really pray that the Bosnians who suffered through it and through their families will definitely move on from this. And, and you're right, I really love the way that you kind of attribute some of the healing towards the community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And I think we discussed this earlier about how can you move on and how much does faith play a part in this and it sounds like you're describing that one way that it can be done to move on is through faith and understanding that everyone on the wrong side of justice will have their occupants uh, from God Almighty but I, I wanted to ask you very much about this scenario of bodies that are being found and being distributed around the world because that's why we're finding that some of the coffins that are being buried are being buried with say without just with an arm and and a hand uh, without the head because way they um excavated the ground and moved the bodies around they, they were splitting bodies and this is this is so horrendous that I've never really experienced or heard something so devastating as this. And and after the uh, genocide that happened with the with the Jews, it, this is in Europe that the next biggest genocide or the largest massacre in Europe after the Holocaust. Do you think the work that's being done so far, and with your efforts as well, stories will be able to come? through and people can then learn from these and not make mistakes again? 
you know, um, as we can see, you know, the world and its current state, um, things are, you know, there are problems everywhere. But during this uh, war, a lot of um, other problems occurred, such as like propaganda and lack of, you know, knowledge and worldly interest. And like my parents have said, you know, these people would say to each other, you know, they are Bosnia, they are Serbian, they are Kurd, you know, they are your enemy. And many claim to have ethics and a moral compass, but what I find is what they truly lack is a connection to God. Hmm. Because people from all faiths distance themselves from true teachings of their faiths. So their ethics and moral compass fall on a very low uh, human destination since it has nothing to do with earning the pleasure of God. Because it just becomes like a back and forth of, you know, who is right and who is wrong. You you mentioned earlier that there are people in Bosnia, the Serbs, who don't believe the genocide took place. And when the International Court of Justice um, put both of those two leaders who started the war, I actually don't really want to mention their names, really. But they people were saying that actually it, it didn't happen, that there was no genocide. How, how can you or, or how do you approach this subject with those people? Do you just tell them you're, you're misguided or... Do you say, look, look at the graveyard that's being created? How do you start that dialogue? Because it's something that we're going to be talking about in the next hour as well. I mean, for somebody who, in my opinion, who says something, I think to begin with, they have, you know, either they have trouble understanding things or they have trouble communicating with people because there's countless evidence. There's countless, you know, photos, videos, graves. You have people who are... They have all kinds of mental problems, anxiety, depression, PTSD from the war. Yeah. I hear many stories that come from my parents. So to deny the war is, you know, just denying the truth itself. It's, it's every single year. What, if, 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 if this genocide did not happen, why do we try to uh, show the people the importance of this genocide and for not, to not be repeated again? And many people like to, you know, give their own agenda, but I do my best to preach what, um, as Ahmadis and as Muslims, how we should see what happened, you know, how we should go about the genocide. And there's just one quote I would like to share from the president of Bosnia. And he said that, if we forget the genocide done to us, we are compelled to live it again. I shall never tell you to seek revenge, but never forget what has been done. That's so powerful. That is uh, an amazing statement, mm. and I, I think you know. Thank you very much for sharing that. And like I've said to all of our guests who are associated with Bosnia and who have family and who are Bosnian, we, as you know, Voice of Islam Radio and the of our community, we we are with you. Our prayers are with you, uh, and I hope we'll continue celebrating the the Remembrance Day of today. And, and next year, on the 29th, we'll be doing this show again. <laughs> and hopefully to have your insight again. Thank you very much for your time today. So, you know, um, Brother Hanif, this yeah. was um, very powerful what Amar just mentioned. 
and you know him being a trainee imam also and having a heritage from bosnia mm. he is you know really close to and one thing which he mentioned is you know turning towards allah the almighty is one thing which can help you know has um, his holiness hazrat um, fatima si um, the fourth as um, tahir ahmed may allah be pleased with him you know when this was happening he mentioned the words and it, it, it says oh people who believe and you know if i tell you about a bargain who can, which can save you from such a painful um punishment and that um that bargain or that um or is which is turn turn towards allah the almighty you know when we were all listening or um speaking about it i was just in, in my heart this was also happening i was trying to, and praying for them that you know may allah have you know a mercy on them all the pain they suffered and what happened and those who are suffering even now because um they they because they have survived genocide and they when they remember these days and i was like may allah have mercy on them so they can you know look past it and try try to make a living and yeah well you got to is that at the end of the day the world moves on yes yeah and we should learn from our history and not repeat the mistakes yeah and with everything without suffering we can't progress as a society yes and if we just have no suffering have no heartache we have no pain in our life so wh- how do we progress you know b- people who suffer from a particular illness but now we have cures for them because yes. they suffered mm-hmm. people have lost loved ones and they're hurt by it but they may have a family later they have more children and, and they will have children and we look to them as a the future because the circle of life goes on mm. and as you both have rightly said all mixed in with that is the belief in god yeah knowing that whatever we do there there is hope and is and god is there uh, for to show his grace and mercy definitely definitely so i think on this night we will end today's show on uh, we can speak about it for many hours <laughs> because we the, this genocide which happened and uh, it's, it's 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 not really far off from our time um in the 90s and hopefully our listeners have learned something new about it and hopefully are more educated now about it and even myself um who wasn't even present at that time and even not being um, learned we haven't learned about it in, in our schools i learned new stuff while while preparing for the show and hopefully our listeners have again some more insight from it and we'll inshallah see you again after a short break about the second hour about interfaith assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Al-Qadir. The powerful. The one who has both power and authority over all his creatures. It is Allah who created you in a state of weakness and after weakness gave strength then after strength caused weakness and old age He creates what he pleases He is the all-knowing the all-powerful
Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. We're back with you uh, with a new topic. Um, in the previous hour, we talk, uh, talked about the Bosnian genocide, uh, but as promised, we will be discussing about. Um, the importance of interfaith dialogue in promoting peace and understanding the importance of having interfaith dialogues, um, what interfaith dialogue is, um, what the teachings of Islam is, how Islam emphasizes on the importance of having interfaith dialogues. Uh, we will also be giving um, codes of the Holy Quran and the uh, the sayings of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and his life as well and also um, uh, we will be giving some quotes from the uh, the caliphs of the Ahmadi Muslim community what their stance was and of course the promised Messiah what his belief was on interfaith dialogue we also have a guest for today who will be joining us live um now just to start with um Saad yes um w- when we speak about interfaith dialogue right yes. it might be n- it might not be uh, familiar for everyone because not everyone let's say has a faith or believes in faith so those people who have faith and practice faith they know what uh, you know, interfaith dialogues Correct. is and and how it works and why it is important. So, what is the importance? Of what is interfaith dialogue and what is it? The, what is the importance of it? Zakaria, uh, you know, interfaith dialogues um, is a constructive and an open conversation between mm-hmm. you know individuals um, of different religious backgrounds. So right. when they come together, they speak about their beliefs, their differences, and the similarities also. Wow! Right. Mm-hmm. So it promotes understanding, it res- um, respect and cooperate, um, cooperation, and among uh, among d- diverse communities in you know in today's globalized world where people from various faiths uh, live side by side. Hmm. For example, where I live, I have a Christian living next to me, yeah. and I have a Hindu living on the other other side, and you know. This is what Britain is. Britain is diverse. And that's a great thing about Britain. You have so many um, people from many walks walks of life living just in your community, and yeah. you seek, you see them, you talk to them, yeah. and then this is one great. Uh, there are many things, but this is one yeah. actually great thing where you have a prime minister who is from an Asian background, and you have. Um, also, for example, the, the mayor of London, yeah. who is from a, an Asian background here. Yeah. So you know all this. Is, yeah. I mean. Yeah, it's true. I mean, one thing I I had to say, and and and, and I have to, uh, re- uh, you know, correct it. This is that interfaith doesn't only belong for those who have belief. So yes. those who don't have any belief, or might be atheist or agnostic, yes, they can also join the interfaith dialogues because they can also learn from what different religions and different faiths have to Correct. say. 
right? So you know, pretty much everyone is uh, you know involved in this. And you this know, is Zakaria. This is one great interfaith um, dialogue. is actually a really good thing yeah. where people come together and educate each other about their beliefs, whatever mm. they be, be it believing God or not being believing God. Mm-hmm. But you come together, you see what the similarities are, what the differences are. And one thing I always say, you know, one thing about interfaith. We should come together on the similarities, yep. and come become a community, and not um, hold. Oh, you believe in this? I don't believe in this. Oh, mm. this is this, and this is this. Just leave them to the side. But the things we believe, all or whatever that be, yeah. come together as a community, and that's one thing where interfaith helps with. And yeah. these dialogues help us to educate people around. And you know, we have interfaiths in our community mm. with many different um, religions, or be it from walks from any walk of or, or of life. Yeah. And you have many people who, who join them, who listen. I've I've attended many interfaith um, discuss this yeah. discussions, mm-hmm. and I've learned quite a few a few bits from uh, from different religions. Yeah, and you know it, that's the one great thing about it. Yeah. But we should always remember that we should come together on the similarities, and then okay, there, there are differences. There, right? there, are, there are definitely similarities so, because yes. as 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 Muslims, we believe that all the religions have come from God. Yes, and we believe in fact and. We believe in all the prophets that have brought those belie- uh, you know, the, the religions. Right? Correct, and and that means all the messengers of God Almighty they they brought with the same message, yes. which was in order to uh, create peace, you know, bring morality towards the world and 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 unite the mankind. Right. Yes. So this was the purpose of God Almighty sending you know prophets throughout the whole. Uh, in uh, th- throughout the whole world and throughout the the the, the entire uh, you know time, right? Yes. Yeah. The one thing which has to be remembered here is even for our listeners, you know, interfaith dialogue doesn't mean we are forcing people to convert to Islam no. or telling them, okay, this is the right religion or this is we because Allah the Almighty said like Rafid and that there's no compulsion in religion. Yeah. So we just te- we just educating. We are learning from the uh, uh, other religions also at, that, at the same time. Yeah. Because um, all religions, if they come together on the similarities which we all have, a community is formed. A love, uh, a brotherhood is formed. Definitely. And definitely. when that brotherhood is formed in your community where you live, yeah. And then you all come together, be it be it on a Eid or be it on on any other occasion. So you you because I remember when Ramadan comes, we have you know. Um, our neighbors used to, um, bring us, you know, um, iftari. Iftari is basically just um, f- to break your fast. So they bring you iftari. So and the meal that the meal, uh, yes, is eaten, eaten uh, when to we break, break the fast. The fast right. Correct. Okay. And they bring you that, and you give them also something. And when when New, or New Year's comes or some any other occasions come, we give them let's say chocolates. And yeah. this is how a um, a trust is formed. And yeah. you know who's yeah. living next to you. And that's, mm. then that's the one thing. I think it's really important great. that we recognize this. Yes. And yeah. one of the things that I kind of reflect on, and I agree with everything what you've, mm-hmm. what you've said, building bridges and look at what uh, unites us, not what divides us. But I think, and I want to discuss this with you guys as well. We're talking about interfaith. Um, yeah. So, you know, when it comes Christmas time, and the 25th of December, I know we, we have views, but many people get a Christmas tree, they get presents, they decorate their house. When it comes to Easter, when it comes to Diwali, uh, you come to all the other religions. So my personal view is if we want to have good dialogue, when it comes to our Eid, for example, 
or when it comes to the end of fast, we celebrate. But we should also take on some of the ways decorate our house, make actually celebrate in a fun way with our children and say, this is our religious festival happy day. You can have decorations, but under explaining that we are celebrating the end of fasting we are celebrating the sacrifices of of abraham that, that he did and and make it enjoyable so although at christmas you have christmas tree we don't have to have a christmas tree but i think we should also take those interesting facts and also let our children also have a good time enjoy and understand what it is because i've always had the impression and you might correct me wrong that when we celebrate our our eden and our ce- celebration days we try not to have decorations and i don't know if that is a, a, a tradition or is it something that we're not uh, we're not supposed to do but i think when we if we want to integrate and we want to tell our christian brothers that yes today is our eid day well, this is why we've got some decorations in the house because we are celebrating the end of fasting. It's just the people we tell our children, yes, we also celebrate. And I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I'll be interested to hear your point of view. Um, I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, decorating your house when it comes to your own uh, celebration yeah. day, right? Um, but w- what Islam teaches is that... Um, the celebration should happen with thanking God Almighty, yeah. right? And that happens through prayers in in both Eids, in both um, uh, you know, uh, in in the, uh, the the celebration after Ramadan and the celebration of the sacrifice that we had, you know, uh, a week ago or two, uh, nearly two weeks ago, right? So we 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 thank God Almighty and we we do this through prayers and that's what how we do it so that. You know, there is one side of celebrating and the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of upon him, also said that, you know, make sweets and, and good food that could be remembered and people can enjoy the food as well. But next to that, even before that or after, you know, having sweets and, uh, you know, celebrating, you should also, um, you know, congregate, unite yourself mm. and, and, and pray, thanking God that he has enabled us to celebrate such an important day and and this is what is yeah, no, in I, my I opinion yeah. and, and that's exactly what we should be doing because that's mm-hmm. exactly what we are doing yeah but we're talking today about dialogue and interfaith and we're talking about uh promoting understanding yeah and actually how are we really going to um show show to people that we are fully integrated into society yeah. and that we can understand your celebrations and we see it and we, we enjoy it. We, we, you know, we all get time off work at Christmas time. <laughs> yeah. We get to spend time with our families, yeah. right? So, so but, and then when we take time off work to celebrate Eid, we should also uh, show how, show our understanding and invite people to our homes and definitely. see how we celebrate. Definitely. Right? Definitely. So this is the, this, and this is what I mean about. I'm not saying we have a d- too crazy decorations, but you're right. The premise should always be prayer. Thank God, this is how we do it, right? Yes. But if we want to also have a, a dialogue and promote peace and understanding, I think we should also be be okay with it. Not not so much of a okay, as long as we understand it. Yeah. Yes. The, the 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 thing that you want to say is. 
invite people in and 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 uh, and uh, invite people of your neighbor especially who yeah. are not celebrating in that day but also tell them about your yeah, why you're celebrating yeah. and, and of course for them you know when it's decorated they would think okay there is a celebration happening so um yeah i mean for definitely you should in order to have uh, you know integrate in the society and 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 share your feelings share your um uh, your happiness with uh, with others we should you know yes. always invite our friends and and neighbors definitely you know when the, when let's say when mm. Eid Adha came the, the the celebration of sacrifice right and you have a uh, portions which is um when for, for in meats you have portion for your family portion for your third, for, uh, the uh, for, for, uh, for the yeah. poor and then you have some um, section for, for, for the for the neighbors also right mm. and then when you when the eid comes or the celebration comes when you call them over you have a, 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 a beautiful setting for them they sit down mm. and then you know they learn more they yes. teach you uh, you you teach them something you learn something from, from them, them as well, yeah. right and then this is how a, a a building bridges as you mentioned before this is how it's formed and this is how the trust uh, among your neighbors is formed well, in london especially it's really hard to form bridges is actually really because if i used to live in a village bef- in germany right yeah and i used to know the guy who, or or the family living three four down, uh, streets down, down the road and i used to know them by the name but here in london it's really difficult it's, yeah, it's everyone's so busy everyone uh, has doesn't have so much time that you you're lucky enough if you know the neighbor who lives next to you i've been living uh, on the same street for many years i know like the og uh, the, the the people who have been mm. living there for a very long time i just know them i don't know the people who just recently moved in because i don't have the time sometimes to meet them which is unfortunate on my side my weakness right but um trying to build bridges is also sometimes really hard uh, so t- totally agree i yes. mean london is one of those places where it's quite transient cool, you know, many people come and go you live in some parts of london and um you might build up a relationship then they've moved on oh yes it is very much like that you know yeah. you got people international people come work for international students come and go and 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 i just and and on my la- last point so say for example if we you had young children who who are at school and it came to easter you at school they'll have everything decorated you go come christmas time you'll have everything decorated so when it comes to our celebrations what's the harm in having a decoration decoration yeah, yes. because yeah. it then helps our children to also integrate and understand and appreciate because it's it's something that's common to us we're yes. celebrating something so beautiful i mean although the christians are celebrating the birth of jesus christ which we know was not the 25th of december we know through their own scriptures but it's the concept of the birth of a prophet of god almighty yes right? So you know um it does that's why interfaith dialogues are really great and mm. um, building bridges with different communities yeah. learning from them and you know um regarding this we have also a clip that, um, what it says um um yes uh, do apologize we have our guest on with us and I don't want to play an audio clip before that uh, uh, we have yeah, with us our you know beloved is a friend of mine also a big brother of mine uh, we have Imam Rabi Mirza who um um is a imam of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and works for the Ahmadiyya television um um also so with this short introduction I, I would like to welcome to show assalamu alaikum peace be upon you how are you 
ഫോർഫൈസ്റ്റ് Uh, it's a very very uh, uh, interesting uh, question um because the mannerism in which islam has promoted and endorsed uh interfaith dialogue and interfaith harmony um not many other faiths have gone to that extent or that degree because yes. islam is a universal religion correct and islam seeks to incorporate all the good values of all the other religions into its own ethos or ethics that's why the second caliph of the ahmadiyya muslim community he beautifully mentioned that just like there are other tributaries small streams uh, islam is that ocean that all of these streams flow into mm-hmm. so all of the goodness um that has come from those religions they have actually flowed into the religion of Islam yes now when we look at interfaith dialogue and interfaith harmony our prime example and our primary source is of course the holy quran but at the same time the person who emulated and physically showed us how to adhere and act upon the quranic teachings was the holy founder of Islam the holy prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and he showed us through his actions how to um you know endorse and advocate for interfaith dialogue for example yes. we know that when the christians of najran an envoy mm-hmm. um came to the holy prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him to meet with him to find out his claim to ask him questions about his claim the time of their prayer had risen yes and when they be started becoming um quite you know hesitant and they became somewhat uh, fearful um that the prayer time is going to exceed and, and we need to do our prayers yes and the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him said to them that you don't need to go anywhere else you can offer your prayers here in the mosque so this misconception that god forbid a non-muslim is not allowed into the mosque is totally wrong and totally against correct the example of the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him then another very major factor that played into the interfaith harmony and interfaith dialogue was when the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him was appointed as the governor of medina yes and the charter of medina that's one of the greatest charters that has ever been written but not many people know about it and the reason is because the mannerism in which the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him uh, stipulated and wrote the various different articles uh, about it that for example the jews and the pagans of medina and the muslims they will live together in an amicable manner they will live together in harmony they will help one another i mean this also shows how the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam peace and blessings of allah be upon him was an advocate uh, a champion for uh, interfaith dialogue and interfaith harmony Correct. so 
the religion of Islam, in fact, is an advocate for interfaith dialogue and interfaith harmony. Yes, unfortunately, there are some uh, characters or some, um, you know, medieval medievalists, I should say, that uh, you know uh, want to seek a bloodthirsty jihad and you know put everybody to the sword so that they can become muslims but this is farther from the truth this is neither the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him example and neither what is was it the example of his rightly guided caliph this is something that they have these uh, medievalists have concocted afterwards so this actually shows how islam fully endorses uh, interfaith dialogue you know, Brother Rabib, um, it was beautifully put there in this um, um, answer. You know, um, in your experience, what are some common mis- misconceptions or misunderstandings that people of different faiths may have about Islam? And, you know, how can interfaith dialogue help address and overcome these misconceptions? Well, again... <clears throat> The way that we can overcome these sort of misconceptions is if we get to know one another. Yes. If if we're going to be close-minded, then obviously you're not going to be able to know what the other person believes or what his ethics or what his doctrines are. But you have to be very open-minded. This is this is why even when we do outreach programs, um, a lot of the times on on the street, we see that there are other, there are some other faiths that are also doing the outreach programs. And a lot of the times when they hand you your, their leaflet mm-hmm. and you give them your leaflet, they say, no, no, we don't want to take your leaflet. Yes. But the question is that this actually shows that the faith that they come from, unfortunately, is close-minded. Whereas my experience and my own, you know, my, my own um, experience has been that whenever they've given me the leaflets, I always take their leaflets to read. Uh, what they have to say, and that's that's the way that you get to know about other faiths and what they believe in. So Correct. you see, Islam is is as I mentioned before, is an advocate, a champion for interfaith dialogue and you know inter uh, interfaith harmony. And again, it always comes back to this point as well, where the Holy Quran has so beautifully stipulated that every nation has been sent a prophet. No other holy scripture has mentioned this except the Holy Quran. When, what does this teach us? This teaches us that every single nation that God Almighty has placed here on earth has been given that spiritual fountain, that spiritual water from God Almighty. Yes, if they interpolated it, if they perverted it, if they polluted it, that's to their own uh, doing and that's their own doing themselves. But the fact of the matter is that there's no nation in the world that has not been given this spiritual water. And God Almighty further states in the Holy Quran, right at the beginning, he states that he is Rabbul Alameen, Lord of all the world. It doesn't say that he is Rabbul Muslimin or Rabbul, uh, Rabbul Nasirin mm-hmm. or, you know, or Rabbul Yahudin, that he is the Lord of the Muslims or the, or the Jews or the Christians. No. He says that he is Lord of all the world. So that is a very key factor and principle to showcase how Islam advocates for interfaith dialogue and interfaith harmony when the fact that God Almighty is calling himself Lord of all the worlds and he's not limiting himself to a certain nation and a certain people, then how is it possible that Islam that you know is 
a religion, a universal religion from God Almighty can limit itself in this regard. Mm-hmm. It can never do so. It champions interfaith harmony, interfaith dialogue, because Islam is a religion of peace, and by understanding and respecting each other's beliefs and values, peace and harmony can be established in the world. The Holy Quran even so far goes to say that do not even malign or vilify or, you know, defame the gods of other people. Hmm. But as we know that in Islam, we cannot accept any other god except Allah the Almighty. We cannot accept the fact that there would be any gods or any idols, you know, placed by God Almighty's side. But even here, God Almighty has given that beautiful teaching that don't malign, you know, they're, they're gods. And this is another key principle in showcasing how Islam advocates for interfaith dialogue and interfaith harmony. So all of these things fundamentally showcase how Islam is a true advocate for peace in the uh, region of interfaith. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, wonderful answer indeed. Um, I also agree with, uh, you know, recently I was um, in Speaker's Corner to listen to what, you know, some of the different uh you know, scholars of different faiths had to say, and I also had a you know discussion with a Christian uh, priest. In in fact, and uh, I remember he was giving out leaflets, and I also took that. Um, and uh, this is what Islam teaches. Um, you know that we should be tolerant. We should you know learn about others, even though, even if there are different differences between us, we should you know accept accepted but also have respect for for others as well um n- now interfaith dialogue um is something which is e- extremely important and and how can we uh, you know how can interfaith dialogue contribute to promoting peace and harmony in societies uh, that are uh, culturally diverse and have multiple religious communities so I think that the way, um, you know, that it can also promote um, culture and diverse communities because once you get to know about one another, that's the way that diversity will be established within a society. I mean, you just mentioning Speaker's Corner. Um, you know, I, I, I think that now Speaker's Corner has become... I think we just um, lost uh, Imam Rabib for a moment yes. there. So I think he was talking about Speaker's Corner, which you went to. Yeah, correct. It's become quite synonymous for people to stand on a a platform and express themselves, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's a Speaker's Corner is not really a place where you can have you know interfaith dialogue because where whoever comes there, that they just want to you know force you to believe whatever they. I mean, uh, interfaith dialogues are different where where different. Uh, you know, religious scholars come together and present their own faiths without criticizing other faiths. Uh, and this is what, what 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 interfaith dialogue is meant for, right? So it's it's extremely obviously speakers' corners a diff- complete different atmosphere. Yeah, it is right? a different atmosphere. So yeah. you are there to make yourself stand out the most. And obviously, then you have different ways of doing that. Mm-hmm. So interfaith dialogue is more about talking in calmness, trying to understand each other at that yeah. time, and th- th- that's some big difference there. Mm. So interfaith is being able, being tolerant, mm. being understanding, 
and be uh, also listening. But if you're not doing these three things, or well, then there is no point of having these interfaith dialogues at that mm. moment because you're trying to just you're saying, okay, no, 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 this is not the right. But my point is, my point mm. should be the one you should be listening. Yeah. Then then, then these uh, school arguments happen, and yeah. you know, many it, it can even burst out yeah. something else. Mm-hmm. So, uh, how much, uh, how much of of this? Because you both are religious leaders, right? And you have both entertained and encouraged and taken part in many interfaith dialogues. When um, what what are the challenges that you've both faced? I mean, if you had someone who just completely disagrees with you, what do you do? Do you walk away or do you just listen? So you have, but hey, first of all, I'm still a brand re- uh, <laughs> recently graduated, so I don't have any myself. But I've been to inter- uh, interfaith dialogues where I've been listening, mm. and that's that's I have only that experience. But I haven't been presenting so far, or in interfaith fi- interfaith um, um, dialogues. But one thing which I've learned so far is, if you or the person with you that uh, at that point are listening to each other, mm. and the audience who are uh, sitting there are they also tolerant, and then then at the end when you have the Q and A session, then the when you when you start hearing the question the audience are asking, then you understand okay they have been listening, they have been trying to understand, but they have these questions in their mind which they want to ask now. Okay, you believe in one God. How come so? Hmm. Right, and these because we, while while you were talking about it, and then you listen to them. Okay, yes, this is my opinion. It's a very successful interfaith dialogue yeah. because you have people there who might go back and try to educate them more, or try to go into it, or research more about yeah. it. I I just I, I attended um, a a dialogue interfaith dialogue after Ramazan uh, mm-hmm. one during Ramazan and we had an aftari and at the aftari uh, because it was quite the moment for muslims uh, because it was a time of the breaking of the fast but in that dialogue we had people from different types of faith who came and who took part so we started the session with the dalavat and also in the same um, program we had someone who played a musical instrument yes. because it was a melody, it was softening, it was soothing. Mm. And then we had someone else who spoke about a painting that resembled something of peace and humanity. So you had such diverse beliefs and ways of thinking things, but it was a great dialogue. Yes. And mm. we still broke fast and we still ate well. Oh, yes. So the, these, the, 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 uh, yeah. these are the things, you know, which... Um, our inter- interfaith dialogue or speaker that's why when we spoke a speaker's corner it's a completely different environment completely different setting yeah. and uh, for interfaith you need to have that um, brotherly bond there and then you when you speak with one another and yeah. the people around you mm. are not fighting or trying to get an argument across yeah. mm. so, so the only thing the only thing that I'll say to, to both of you is that when we have this interfaith uh, dialogue However great they are, yes. they're fantastic, and they create lots of tolerance and understanding and build bridges. But if the leaders of those faiths do not open themselves, but what I have found, and I might be wrong, is that if you are promoting your faith, but you are, the say, the leader of that faith, you are the man in charge, Yes. You would find it difficult to have some dialogue, but you wouldn't really want to change your mind. Oh, yes. 
So I think interfaith dialogue should be done not with the leaders in a way of the faith groups, but for the common people. And we should be there to facilitate it because their views and our understanding of life is real. Sure. They can understand and see things and reflect better. But if you were born and brought up to to think and behave in a certain way, would you be confident enough to change your mind? I mean, you, know, you both brother, are. It's actually a really good question. Yeah, for example, let's say um, I'm a Muslim, right? And I was born a Muslim. I was taught about um, by my father, my, my, my mother about Islam, right? And they under, they understood more. Um, uh, uh, they told me, okay, this is, this is how it's done. But where it, it came at a point where I started learning and researching about myself. And this is how I turned in, went into um, uh, the university of our community. Mm-hmm. And because I wanted to study more about it. Mm-hmm. But we also have a um, audio, right? Um, yes. Uh, it's, it's, it's a question asked to His Holiness, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community. The question is a very interesting question mm. asked by a non-Muslim person. He asked, does the Ahmadi favor interfaith dialogue? What can be achieved through dialogue and activity? Let's uh, listen to that. Um, the question I would like to ask is, um, does the Ahmadiyya community favor interfaith dialogue and activity? And secondly, if so, what does it believe can be accomplished by such dialogue and activity? Thank you. In fact, it is the Ahmadiyya community which took a pioneer move in this direction long ago, close to the turn of the century. It was first invitation issued by Jamaat Ahmadiyya to all faiths for an interfaith dialogue. In fact, uh, it happened even before that in 1896. The first conference of interfaith which was held in Lahore was at the initiation of the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, and uh, the conditions laid down for this participation were very fair and a new chapter was in fact opened in this direction. Every speaker representing any faith was required to speak on behalf of his scriptures, should not attribute things from himself. And whatever he wants to say should be in praise of his faith, not in critical appreciation of others' faiths. He should say whatever he may please, but with an open mind and always with a reference to his own basic scriptures. And bring to light the good points so that others may understand from the mouth of those who believe in something or what value they have in their mind and what role it can play in the world peace and so on. This was taken up later on by the second head of the Ahmadiyya community who also happened to be my late father. He started a new series of interfaith talks. We called it Jalsai Mazahib. And uh, in that, repeatedly, all over India, such conferences were held under the same conditions. And they became very popular 
because many misunderstanding was removed and more than that attitudes were rectified instead of the mad uh, debates of the previous era where everybody went for the skin of the other everybody projected himself as belonging to a faith which is honorable which is good for mankind and so on so in rectification of attitudes such efforts are known to be fruitful but beyond that whether it will really change the face of the earth and will be able to establish peace i have my doubts because this type of religious ship religious leadership which participates in such conferences has no hold on the masses of those religions they represent and whatever decent attitude they they display in such conferences as far as the common men belonging to the faith are concerned they are most often controlled and influenced by the zealots or zealots of the faith and they don't like such reconciliations because they thrive on hatred not on love so the more hatred there is felt in the hearts of followers of one faith against the faiths of the others more popular such leaders become so how to emancipate how to liberate the common people from the clutches of these vultures i hope you won't mind my strong word vultures but vultures it is which comes to my mind because there is no other better descriptive word the thrive on carrion human carrion and uh, it's very unfortunate that they do it in the name of god in the name in the name of their holy founders and prophets etc because uh, they present a very sorry picture of religion as such and they themselves are responsible for bringing bad name to their religion and their leaders so if interfaith leadership also has some dialogue with the leadership which is really in command then of course hopefully some uh, better attitudes may result from that reformed attitudes the second thing is that uh, the peace is far more related to the political attitudes rather than the religious attitudes more often than not it is the it is religion which is exploited by politicians and wherever religion has been found to play any negative role in the world affairs it has never been able to do it without politics first they command sources of power at the political level then they play havoc with the peace of the world so what to do about them this requires more much much more than just some dialogues held at uh, at the level of that you're talking about in some peaceful atmosphere like this hall etc because these things do not make a dent upon the political thinking at all so it is at best a, an academic luxury yet it's enjoyable to talk good and listen good is very good thank you <laughs>
So these were the words of His Holiness Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih IV. May Allah be pleased with him. And you know, interfaith dialogues, what, um, how it works, this was as we're mentioning here. I would like, first of all, uh, to thank our two um, great presenters which have been um, presenting me for the past uh, four, five, five months now, or even more than that, and Brother Zakaria and Brother Hanif, also our technical department, you know, um, Brother Akib and our producers of today uh, who, who's presented um, who produced a show about Bosnia gen- genocide um, Faiza Mirza Maliha Shahzad Anna Mahmood Nudrat Qasim Faiza Sayyid and Zakla to, to them for producing such a beautiful show and in the second hour uh, our uh, beautiful brother Zakaria who has uh, produced uh, this show about interfaith dialogue I would like to thank all of them for uh presenting or producing these shows and inshallah I'll see you again next Thursday, uh, Tuesday till then assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu